Hi. Good morning. All right. So uh, we're going to begin with the scripture. Uh, this is an interaction between Jesus and Martha. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as your children, and uh, we want to reflect on your word and your true nature. I pray that um, you would use... uh, the oration and teaching and speaking that happens today toward that end, and that even more than that, you would just do what you do. You would work in people's hearts this morning, and people could just hear from you and receive from you. Amen. So good morning. Raise your hand if, uh, if you consider yourself, and keep it raised, consider yourself to be a hardworking American. Raise your hand. Cool. Keep it raised. Uh, if you also consider yourself to be somewhat generous... Keep it raised. Somewhat generous. Uh, keep it raised. I, I know you Midwesterners love this. Um, if, you, if you also consider yourself to be somewhat responsible, keep it raised. Cool. For you hardworking, responsible, somewhat generous Americans, I salute you. You can put your hands down. I think if you identify with those qualities, at least to some degree, there's perhaps no more confusing story uh, no, uh, than the face-to-face interaction between Martha and Jesus, the scripture we just read. We kind of don't talk about this passage very much. We, we kind of breeze over it, right? And when we do consider it, we kind of, in our minds, we relegate it to like, oh, it's like a diet Bible story. It's like a light kind of thing. Jesus wasn't that mad. Like, it wasn't that big of a deal. What's so wrong with what Mar- Martha did? Or we go on the opposite end of the spectrum, and we go, that Martha... Uh, in order to make sense of the story, because she was a jerk, she, uh, she deserved to be reprimanded by Jesus, she wasn't that fun to hang out with, unlike me, uh, and uh, she valued production and presentation and preparation over people. She doesn't like people. Have you ever known someone who, uh, who as soon as company comes over, they kind of like start fixing their house? You know, <laughs> they're like, oh, I better do this, I better do this. And, and they're focused on preparation for people. That's cool. And I've typically thought of Martha in this way. Oh, she's a, she's a person like that. Like when people come over, she's like, I feel a little bit weird about interacting improvisationally, socially, so I'm going to start fixing stuff and pre- preparing. And, I'm, and, I, and I thought, like typically, like Jesus is, is kind of going, that, no, Martha, you're sort of missing it. Don't do that. Like be present. And also I'm the Messiah, so I'm pretty good too. Um, but I think perhaps I've had a, a, an unfair caricature of her, and that's, I've not maybe understood it quite correctly upon reflection. So Jesus does call her out, but where does she really go wrong? Uh, we're going to go over the passage again. So Jesus and his disciples were on their way, and they came to a village, and it sounds like Martha opened her home to him, which is awesome. Uh, and she had a sister, Mary, who was maybe, in verse 39, we can, uh, maybe we can draw from that, that Mary was like freeloading, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure. But it sounds like they have a sibling dynamic. We'll get to that later. And Mary sat at the Lord's feet, uh, listening to what he said. Um, Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. 
she came to, uh, to Jesus and she said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left uh, me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And maybe you've down, been down this road before with siblings, right? <laughs> like, you have this like caricature of them and, and, and you feel like they're in the wrong constantly because of some core thing about their character. Anyways, Jesus goes, Martha, Martha. And you never want Jesus to say your name twice like that, right? <laughs> the Lord answered, you're worried about uh, and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. I like that. I want to focus on that for a second. Just verse 42. But few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. So Jesus wasn't really saying how I typically think of this passage. He wasn't saying, Martha, what you're doing is wrong. Uh, he, he more says, what you just said was wrong, right? Like the, the story of Martha isn't, isn't Martha's preparing, getting things ready, and then Jesus like turns aside and goes, Martha, all this preparation, don't do that. Shame on you. That's never needed. That's not what's happening here. He's not saying there's not a need for such things. No, he says, Martha, Martha, um, you're wrong about what you just said. Your sister doesn't need correction in what she's doing. Jesus points out, in fact, um, your sister is doing what is technically better. He says, but few things, are, few things are needed, or indeed only one, what your sister's doing. And a lot of us, like Martha, with the best of intentions, and I would even say with the best of qualities, responsibility, generosity, hard work, um, we miss it. Even with the best of intentions, we miss it. We miss the point, the point of it all. So what's the point, you guys? What is the point? What is the point of our faith, of Christianity? What's the end, the thing behind the thing? What does it lead to? What's the ultimate point? One point is, it's true. And I believe that offensively in our culture of relative truth, I believe offensively Christianity is just true. And when we double down on that, I'm like, that's like intellectually viable to go, no, Muhammad and Buddha and Confucianism and Shintoism, they actually taught different things. The core principles of those worldviews are actually different, even in their distilled essentiality. There's a difference. And historically, beautifully, accurately, the teachings of Jesus were conveyed to his disciples and to the scriptures. And we can look at comparative world religions and go, there is a difference, and I believe Christianity is big T, truth, true. And that matters. But I don't think that that is a, a valid answer to the question. What's the point of Christianity? Well, it's true. I think it's a decent point. But I want to look at it a little bit more in depth. This is important to look at. The point of your worldview, the point, of, the point to your existence that Christianity truly leads us to. The meaning of life. I figured I'd try to tackle a small topic while Tommy was gone. <laughs> so I'm your kid right now. I'm asking why. Why, 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 why? So like, what's the point of Christianity? One possible answer that people have is uh, uh, to, to be saved. Okay, but why? To avoid, uh, to avoid suffering. Okay, but why? Like, why avoid? Like, what's the point of that? One possible answer that I alluded to just now, to avoid a bad thing, and by bad thing, I mean a really bad thing, like the worst thing, like eternal separation from God. However, when Jesus teaches, it doesn't seem like avoiding that bad thing is the actual point of it all. It's more like Jesus is, is, is making it, it seem like hell is like a spiritual physics. Like, if you choose it ongoing, then you have separation from God. It's like... Um, 
when your kids uh, are doing something and you ask them to do something else, like, hey, my child, do this. And they ask commonly, again, why? Why should I do this? And then you answer, because if you don't, there's a consequence. That's not a great answer. Sadly, that's the answer I give my kids a lot of times. But that's not like the real answer behind why I want them to do something, to avoid a consequence. Now, I say this a little with some trepidation. I posit this lightly because centuries of Christendom are built on this idea. The point of Christianity is to avoid hell. And there's certainly biblical content where Jesus speaks of judgment and justice and the consequence of evil unredeemed. I'm arguing that it's not the reason for everything. It's not the reason for all. Another answer to this question, what's the point of Christianity, is uh, praxis. Like, not, the point isn't to avoid a bad thing, but to live and do a good thing, to do good things, to live life as Jesus intended. Jesus, uh, Jesus' way is the best way, right? That's the point. But I don't think this is the thing behind the thing the end, the point, the goal either, where all meaning lies. The thing that Jesus is saying, everybody, come on, let's go towards. Let's go make sure we're loving and nice to each other, and, and this is the greatest of all things, and don't do the bad things to each other eternally. And that's it. That's the point. Do good behavior, not negative behavior, eternally as the point. Now, loving one another is certainly in Scripture. It's all over the place, and it's beautifully communicated in so many different ways. But if we think loving others is the ultimate goal, then I think we've confused the greatest command with the second command. The second is similar. It's like it, but it's not the same. Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with your soul and with your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Psalm 104, he makes springs pour into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Psalm 104, you did it. I resonate with so much of that, with the exception of pouring oil on my face to make it shine. It, like, the, the creation of our God it is so beautiful. It's something to behold and take joy in. Is not the work of the Lord incredible, church? It's awesome. And there's a lot about God's creation that I love. So much of it. I, if you know me, you know I love eating. I love eating very much. Uh, you know I love laughing. I love, because I'm getting old, now I love weightlifting. I like electric guitar amps. I could go on and on and on about things that I love to Google and research and find fascination in and with and for. The other day I was talking to Pastor Kevin and... Uh, we had the stupidest conversation you've ever heard in your whole life. Uh, we argued about, in a death match, if, if Kevin would survive a 30-pound kangaroo or not. 
It was literally the stupidest thing I've ever. I loved it. I just loved discussing it and arguing. It, like, it, was, it was awesome. I love, I, I'm having fun, you guys. And uh, there's so much about this life that I truly love to the point where I have to watch myself. I teeter on like being in love with the world sometimes. Uh, but there's lots to appreciate about this life. However, all the things that God made pale in comparison to the best thing, the best thing ever, the best thing that each of you have ever experienced. I don't care what they're frying at the state fair. I don't, I don't care what kind of custard you had last Tuesday. I want to speak to that which is so much better. And I don't want to talk about it because it's the best experience we've ever had. I want to talk about it because I believe it is the point, the answer to what is the point to our faith, Christianity, the end, the goal. When my daughter was uh, four years old, there was a moment where I was doing something. I noticed she was kind of staring at me. And I looked at her and I just said, Lane, what is it? And she, she said in the cutest voice ever, she just said, I love you, Daddy. I was like, it hurts. And uh, like a normal human, I said, why? <laughs> I know you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to say, I love you too. But I have like a family of Vulcans. So when Darren and I say, I love you, we go, oh, but why? Uh, so I asked Lane, my daughter, why? And, um, and she said, because uh, essentially in, in, in what she said, she said, because you love me. So she was describing this sort of exchange of love between father and daughter. And I don't conjure this brief loving interaction uh, to say that the point of existence is your kids and their affection, although that's common. How many of you know that is a dangerous vial to put the meaning of life into for you? <laughs> the love and affection of your children. How about when they're 17 and they feel like they don't need you anymore and you are the singular obstacle between them and their sin-ridden goals, <laughs> right? Good luck with that. Another example of what I'm talking about in my personal life and in, in my life experienced is um, when I was a sophomore at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, at that time, although the weather was beautiful, my wife dumped me. Uh, she wasn't my wife at the time. And uh, I, I could apply a euphemism there, but that's really what happened. She dumped me. And uh, about a year apart uh, after that, she was in Mexico, we, uh, we reunited on campus. And we went on uh, this date, uh, and she, she said, I've thought about you every day, since I've been gone, and I still am in love with you. Which was convenient for me, because I was like, samesies, that's great. <laughs> I loved it. And, and then we went on a series of romantic dates, uh, and along in those dates, Darren said, uh, I want to be with you forever, essentially. And I was like, that's tight, me too. Uh, and it was, I was more classy than that, but this is the fast forward version. And anyways, so we're getting back together, and we went on, the, on all these beautiful dates, um, and it was beautiful. There are channel islands and mountains, and it was uh, spring in coastal California, and all the accoutrement and surrounding was perfect, and yet you could, you could have given me the best meal that any human has ever had, and the best sunset that any human has ever glimpsed, and the best reflection off the mountains that any human has ever glimpsed, and all of that perfection would have paled in comparison to the best thing. When Darren informed me, when my wife informed me, how for me she was. None of the other surrounding details would matter at all. 
compared to when she informed me of how for me she was. And I'm not talking on a broad level, on a macro level. I'm not talking about romance. I'm not talking about the fact that she said yes. I'm not talking about you and your family. These are just personal anecdotes that describe, and I'm reaching towards this greater thing. I'm not even talking about a verbal exchange of love. What I'm talking about is immaterial. It's something immaterial. Have you ever had someone direct their immaterial love toward you? Have you ever had someone point their love at you? And you felt that. It is the best thing. I know things are getting weird at this point, but just stick with me here. <laughs> Have you ever felt like someone has been so for you, your whole person, your health, your spirituality, your development, just love and affection for you? People who go through their early childhood and their adolescence without knowing this, uh, it's detrimental. People that have never experienced this, it's so harmful to a person's development. People that don't know what it is to have other people direct their love and affection and forness for them. It can wound a person so deeply for so long. It can wither a person from inside out. When people never get filled up with another's love, it can sap the life out of life, the meaning out of it. We need this, and the lack of it is so harmful. And this is really like for any age, not just kids. Development at any age, it just requires this. It's just something about how we're wired. Engage with me for a moment, because I'm not talking about just provision. I'm not talking about someone just meeting your physical needs. Imagine with me, engage in a metaphor with me. Imagine that your mom, you have a mom, and she cooks you soup. Uh, every day of your childhood. And uh, she's cooking you, uh, let's say you like it even. And she smiles and gives it to you and you're like, this is great, my mom's great and she provides for me, this is awesome. Uh, and then one day you find out that the reason with which she's giving you this soup, this, this meal every day is because of a, a rule imposed upon her, some, some reason enforced upon her that she has to do it. And you find out that as soon as possible, you're, as soon as possible, your mom is done with you and your soup. That immaterial reality of her disposition would entirely affect how you process the material su sustenance. Because the soup you thought was an expression of immaterial love, and now you realize it's just couched in legalism, an obligation. It would crush the life out of the interaction of giving you food. And you might eat it out of necessity, but it goes from one of your fondest memories, one of the best things about your life in this metaphor, to uh, one of the worst memories you've ever had when you found out it had nothing to do with her love all along. It would poison the past. And in a world that insists on empiricism, in a world where only that which can be weighed and measured and put in a test tube and materially proven or purchased is of any consequence, is it not ironic and amazing that health and meaning and life is sapped without this immaterial love exchange that I speak of? It's such a deep need for us. We go crazy for it. We say things and do things and post things just so that other people will just realize that we're special too and worthy of them pointing their love at us. It's such a deep need. It's such a hunger in all of us to the point where their love and affection for us, um, it is, uh, 
I mean, have you, have you guys heard about uh, uh, people on, on social media right now? Um, some people that have like deleted their Instagram accounts when they have like the most followers of anyone. I don't know if you've heard, heard about this. One guy, 1924.us, one of my favorite um, people that I follow, he, he posts about this uh, every now and then. He, he deleted his Instagram account because he realized, he, he became a Christian, he converted to Christianity, and he had to delete it because he had like millions of followers. And because he, he recognized his addiction for human affection and human approval. And he was feeding this need, but it wasn't, it wasn't um, healthy. He knew that the form of posting things about him and then getting likes was not a sustainable, healthy thing for him. Let's focus on romantic relationships again here. This is why, what I'm talking about is why pornography and transactional sexuality never works. It's never the thing behind the thing that we need. What we're really wanting that satisfies. No one is like, porn really worked for me long term. It's really what I needed out of life and others. Because it's not what you really want. It's not going to give your soul um, what it needs. What you were made to want. It's not going to give you um, what you need. Even in the context of sexuality, something that we believe that is typically thought of as, as um, so physical. It's still empty without this immaterial, non-physical thing that I'm talking about. What we want is relational unity and for physical affection to be an expression of relational unity, of someone's forness for us. In sickness, in health, in rich or poor, attracted or unattracted to us eventually. What I'm saying is, Sexuality is only healthy paired with this thing, this non-physical need in us. There's countless examples. I could go on and on about, I could go category after category of every kind of relationship we need, but what we want is acceptance at every stage of life. What we want is holistic love for people to be for us and for others to direct their love at us in an immaterial exchange of love. Jesus, in John 17, um, talks about unity. He prays about unity for the believers. In verse 21, he says, May they all be as one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. May they belong to us. Then the world will believe that you sent me. I gave them the honor you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. And at this point, you might think, okay, he's talking about honoring his followers. So he's talking about his disciples, his, his chosen few. But the verse prior, he specifically says that that's not the case. In, in verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these followers only. I pray for those who will put their trust in me through the teaching they have heard. So Jesus is saying he wants us to be in unity with each other and with him. Verse 23, I am in them and you are in me so they may be one and be made perfect. Then the world may know that you sent me and that you love them as you love me. This is esoteric. This is Eastern. This is mystic. And typically, when we read Jesus uh, talking like this, we kind of go, it's cool God stuff that he's saying, I guess. And we just sort of breeze over it because it's, it's almost like, how can that mean anything tangible and practical for me? But I don't want you to miss out on what Jesus is saying. I want you to internalize this because he's really saying something that we can take and receive. I'm going to read verse 23 again. I am in them, and you are in me, so they may be one, 
and be made perfect. Then the world may know that you sent me and that you love them as you love me. And this is the best part, verse 24. Father, I want my followers you gave me to be with me where I am, that they may see my shining greatness, which you gave me because you loved me before the world was made. Holy Father, the world does not know you. I have known you. These have known you sent me. I have made your name known to them and will make it known. So they may so then the love you have for me may be in them and I may be in them. Jesus is making the ultimate invitation into that which has existed before matter, before molecules. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, track with me if you can. I'm talking about something, I'm reaching here, like before the creation of matter. I believe, and we believe as Christians, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed in perfect unity, in perfect community. That the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Spirit, and the Spirit loved the Father. Do you understand what I'm saying? And it's immaterial. And Jesus is saying, in that perfect community that's always existed, you are invited in to that unity. A back and forthness. You're invited in. The good news, the best news, is an invitation to that community. The opposite of separation. Heaven. The end. Forever. The point. Whatever drama and whatever chaos and whatever pain and whatever hurt that you are carrying around and have carried around, I believe that when we taste and see and know what it is to be in that community with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when, when we taste and see and realize and experience what it is to be in relational unity with God, I believe that all of that fades away. And that's what heaven is like. It's like everything will fade away in light of his glory. Like, just glimmer at it for a moment. Imagine you can experience God, the creator of the universe, pointing his love at you. And that you fully, maybe for the first time, come to a point in your life where you realize that and accept it. Do you think in that moment, you fully feeling that and realizing it, you are going to care about what your sister said to you? Or how bad your mom was? I'm not saying that a lack of love and a lack of relational unity didn't hurt you. It did. It, was, it, it mattered. It was part of your development to a detriment in your development. But Jesus is going, you are invited into the Trinity. I'm not saying we become God. But man, Paul says that we're like brothers with Jesus. I mean, it's just incredible. Jesus is inviting us into that. There are good works. There's good fruit that manifest in your life as an outcome of the seed of the gospel being planted in your life. And those things matter. Good works matter. But Jesus is saying, you can be in God and God can be in you, which is not a good work. That's a state of life that you're invited to regardless of resume or merit. And that's his prayer that he wants for us now. And he's saying that is our destination.
It is silly. It is crazy. How many Christians I know that would say the best moment of their material life was, an, was a moment where they experienced God's love. Raise your hand if you've heard that story before. The best moment. That's it? Raise your hand if you've experienced Christians going, the best moment of my life is a God pointing his love at me and me receiving it and me pointing it back at God. It is an immaterial reality in an age of empiricism. And we have believer after believer saying, the best moment of my life was just receiving this being pointing their love at me. Jesus said, I came so they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. It's John 10.10. And he means him. The way, the truth, and the life, to be in loving unity with him and his spirit. Martha didn't go wrong uh, by working and loving the guests in her house, loving the family in her house. Prepare. Do good works. Work hard. Spend time on work. The greatest command, though, is still the greatest command. It is the point of it all. And my encouragement to you, Christians, is to also love God with more than your mind. Like, love him with your heart and your soul, too. And cultivate that. Like, build your closet. Build your prayer closet. You got to do that alone. You got to do that in community. Like any relationship, cultivate the love. And it looks a little bit different for each of us. But in your own way, find a way to sit at his feet like Mary and bask in loving exchange with an almighty God. Again, Mary wasn't wrong for preparing and doing hard work and doing good work. She was wrong in her prioritization. Does that make sense? We all need to find a way to be able to sit at his feet and bask with our God. When I was 16, I had a lot of people praying for me. I found out later. Um, I was deeply cynical. Um, uh, my culture had already fashioned me into someone um, that to everything in existence, I just said, okay, that's fine, but prove it. And um, I don't necessarily even think that's like the worst thing to be, but it, but it did... Um, it did create a person who was unwilling to test spiritual waters. I just wasn't open to testing that. If I heard a message like this, I would, I would maybe go, cool, I'll try that if you prove it. Um, and if that's you this morning, um, I would encourage you to just be a little bit more open than that to the God that is chasing you and wants relationship with you. Uh, the moment that I opened my heart to the idea that there is an immaterial being who has been made material for my sake and is still immaterial and existing in perfect unity, and the moment that I opened my heart to that love, it changed everything about me. Every single relationship that I was in changed perspective. Changed my perspective toward women. Changed my perspective towards friendships uh, that, that were guys. Changed my perspective towards families. I was a new creation because of experiencing this immaterial love, this unity with this God, this God that invited me into that. If, if you are here this morning and that resonates with you and you're like, if what you're talking about is true, then I want some of it. 
just open yourself up to it just a little bit. Because I do believe in reading through scripture that God does let us push him away. He does allow that to a certain degree. I was talking to this guy. Uh, so I'm part of a couple community groups. And one of the community groups um, recently, we did karaoke at like the nerdiest bar you've ever heard of. It's called Oak and Shield. And um, there's like Harry Potter paraphernalia and Star Wars stuff everywhere. Anyways, it was karaoke night. And, uh, and there's a guy who's new to our community group named Ben. And Ben, um, are you here today, Ben? No? Cool. Um, <laughs> good. Uh, ben was sharing with me that he works in uh, the medical field, and he specifically works with people that are near the end of their life. And he was sharing with me a couple interactions that he had, and I thought this, this was just so profound and terrifying. And he was saying that um, he's, he's, he, this has happened to him a couple times where someone will be on their deathbed, and they don't know Ben. Ben is like... Um, uh, washing them or, or, or helping them in some way, and they'll, they'll just say out loud, I've wasted my whole life. And they kind of stare up at the ceiling. I've wasted my whole life. I haven't done anything with my life. And he, he, it's not like a totally abnormal thing. He says this happens uh, pretty often. And when I heard that, you know, that'll that'll like give you chills kind of thing. Like my first thought was like, no, it can't be. No one should feel that at the end of their life. Like make it stop. But it's, it's so honest and so real. Um, and what I find is that when people are willing to just open themselves up to this God, to be in relational unity, and they let God in and they surrender to God and they sort of like give in to all the love that's being offered to this, to this God and they point their love back at this God, then they become new creations in such a way where they don't have to, um, I was talking to my wife about this, where they don't have to force events in their life to not feel like their life was wasted. Like, when I heard that story from Ben, I was kind of like, dude, I better get to, I, better, I hope I don't feel like that later. I better get to where I put something on my planner. And in, in reflection, as I was driving home, I was just like, no. Like, the point of life is to just be with you, Lord. And the people that I know that, let, that give themselves over to this God, they are walking ministry. They, everywhere they go, like, stuff happens. And it's exciting to them because God is using them in that moment. And maybe on paper, it's not always like, wow, you solved a crisis. Or what. But it's just ministry happening in their life as a result of opening themselves up to this new God. Or maybe for some of us, this very old friend that we've kept at bay for a while. When I talk about this, this like relational unity being invited into the Trinity, as esoteric as it is, who is resonating with me right now? Anybody? They're just like, I want more of this. I, yeah, I want, I want more of what this God is offering, what Jesus is praying in John 17. So today as we close... Regardless of how people have treated you, regardless of the lack of love that you have received, I want to just say again, the good news is that there is a being who 
has existed this way in perfect relational unity since before matter. And he's inviting you into that relationship. And if you give into that, it will change everything about your life. It will change everything about your life, regardless of your physical circumstance. Um, and I'll do another quick kind of show of hands. If, if you'd like me in this moment to end together as a church to specifically pray for you, for Jesus to come into your life, to be friend and savior and the center of your life. And if you want to open yourself up to this love right now, I just want you to raise your hand. Yep, cool. Awesome. Cool. Anybody over here? One of the, yeah, awesome. Let's just, let's just pray for that right now and be open to that right now. And the band will come up in a minute. And the art and the poetry and the music will help us get over our distraction and stuff that we bring to the table every Sunday morning or, or like every day. Um, that will aid in the process and, and we'll kind of plagiarize these psalms and it, it's awesome, we can sing together. But the most important thing uh, as you enter this moment um, is that however, whatever secret room or locked place that you have against God or that you've been keeping from him, I just encourage you to open it up and it's not about like how bad you are and like how much sin you have. Like we're going to take communion. Like Jesus handled that. You, you can stop doing the math. Does that make sense? The math is no longer applicable because the cross, because of the work of the cross. So like you can eat of the flesh and, and drink of the blood and it's like, cool, you, you're good. When, when the father sees you, he sees, he sees Jesus in terms of like works. So you're good. But also, American Christians, open yourself up to like the unity that God is offering, to, to like this loving experience that you can have every day to walk in step with the Spirit and know that it's not just that you're forgiven, but like God is for you. God is for your spiritual and physical health. God wants to like walk beside you and do mission with you. John 15 says that, that uh, Jesus says that the Father has invited us into his business. That's how much not of a stranger we are, that we get to partner with God. So for, for you that raised your hands and, and for everybody else that didn't like pray with me in this, we're just gonna pray that you have an anchoring moment right now, that you can look back at this moment and you go, that, yeah, that was a time in my life where I gave God more authority. And, and I entered and I took the risk of being more vulnerable with God. And that I could just be in more loving unity with him. So let's pray together.